welcome to Discover Pediatric Surgery. My name is Andrew Grieve and I look forward to being your host today on this exciting episode. I would like to welcome Dr. Nirav Patel. He's a overqualified, well-educated pediatric surgical registrar who's training with us at the moment. He's got his BA Honours in Economics and Political Sciences from Canada. He's done his Masters in Developmental Studies through the University of the Witwatersrand. Uh, he's also qualified as a medical doctor at Wits University. He's the past president of the South African Society of Surgeons in Training. He's got over 10 peer-reviewed published articles and he's also worked in many resource-limited environments, working for MSF for a while in Somaliland. Welcome, Dr. Niraf Patel. Thank you very much, Dr. Grieve, for that wonderful introduction. It was very kind of you. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you and commend you for the amount of effort that you've put in to make this happen. It's a great opportunity for us to share our experience and knowledge, for us to incorporate technology into teaching, and for us to make teaching and knowledge more accessible in an environment like ours. I'd also like to thank SASET for helping to make this venture possible. Yeah, I know. It's excellent. It's a great opportunity for us to learn together. Nirav, let's jump right in. So we know the abdominal cavity has got a much higher pressure zone than the thoracic cavity. What mechanisms help with the prevention of reflux from the stomach back into the esophagus in this situation? There's five very important mechanisms that prevent reflux from the stomach into the esophagus. The first one is the low esophageal sphincter, which is an area of thickened inner circular layer of muscle in the esophagus that extends into the greater curvature of the stomach. The second one is the pinchcock valve mechanism that's created by the right crust of the diaphragm as it wraps around the esophagus at the esophageal hiatus. The third one is a flutter valve that's created by the mucosa of the stomach at the lower esophageal sphincter. The fourth one is the placement of the lower esophageal sphincter within the abdomen and its fixation by the phrenoesophageal ligament. And the fifth one is the coordination between relaxation of the lower esophageal sphincter and primary and secondary peristalsis. So Nira, you've given us a whole list of very important dynamics that help to prevent reflux in any situation. Is there ever a time when we have physiological reflux? Physiological reflux is a common phenomenon amongst all age groups of patients. So it may occur in neonates, infants, children, adolescents, and adults. It's most common after meals. But the important thing about physiological reflux is that it doesn't become symptomatic and doesn't result in any of the pathological manifestations that are associated with reflux disease. So there's been a lot of controversy recently about gastroesophageal reflux and apparent or acute life-threatening events in neonates. What do you think about this association, or is there an association? I think historically we've thought that reflux is the cause of apparent life-threatening events. But more recently, we've come to the understanding that reflux is rather associated with apparent life-threatening events. And the reason for this is that 
the centers of the brain that are responsible for coordinating swallowing and relaxation of the lower esophageal sphincter are also respiratory centers in the brain and immaturity in those centers or in those parts of the brain results in the association that we see between reflux disease and apparent life-threatening events. So, reflux really now is not thought to cause sleep apnea or apparent life-threatening events, but rather to be associated with these phenomena. Thanks, Nirev. That's very interesting. So, how do transient lower esophageal sphincter relaxations fit into this whole picture? So transient low esophageal sphincter relaxations are a normal phenomenon and they are responsible for the physiological reflux that we all experience. In the past, we thought of reflux as due to decreased tone in the low esophageal sphincter. Now we have a better understanding that reflux is really a result of pathological low esophageal sphincter relaxations, which we term transient lower esophageal sphincter relaxations. So these sphincter relaxations are prolonged and increased in frequency. In infants and neonates, this is particularly due to their diet. Um, in the case of neonates and infants, this would be milk. Milk, we know, increases the frequency of transient lower esophageal sphincter relaxations and also promotes delayed gastric emptying. And because of that, they are related to pathological reflux as opposed to physiological reflux. Okay, so in many, in many ways, neonates and young infants actually have a higher incidence of uh, reflux just because of their diet. Um, is there a time period when these kids tend to grow out of this phenomenon of physiological or worsened physiological reflux? Yes, absolutely. So we can think of reflux in children being due to their diet, because we know that milk increases the amount of or the frequency of transient lower esophageal sphincter relaxations, as well as contributing to delayed gastric emptying. But we can also think about it in terms of development and maturation of the centers that are responsible for esophageal peristalsis and relaxation of the lower esophageal sphincter, as well as maturation of anti-reflux mechanisms. So we would expect that by the age of two, most children would have grown out of reflux. Yeah, so I suppose, as you say, by changing to a more solid diet, standing up and sitting after eating, not sleeping as much, all those things, plus the normal sort of physiological or anatomical maturation will all decrease the amount of reflux. Yes, absolutely. Nirav, are there any congenital pediatric surgical conditions that may predispose to gastroesophageal reflux? Absolutely. The three main congenital abnormalities that may be associated with reflux are esophageal atresia, congenital diaphragmatic hernia, and congenital abdominal wall defects. I think in these patients, we need to maintain a very high level of suspicion for the possibility of reflux disease, um, act early, and investigate early. So... What, what are some of the symptoms that we look out for that may indicate that a, a neonate or an infant is refluxing to a pathological level? 
When we think about the symptoms of reflux, we can think about them in terms of uh, esophageal symptoms, respiratory symptoms, and systemic symptoms. And it's very important for us to elicit a good history from mothers of uh, neonates and infants in order to determine whether they may be refluxing or not, simply because the symptoms that present as reflux may be accounted for by a wide range of diseases or disease processes. Um, esophageal symptoms may include, in very young children, irritability when feeding due to esophagitis, recurrent regurgitation or vomiting due to esophagitis or an esophageal stricture, feeding intolerance. Respiratory symptoms may include cough, wheezing, recurrent lower respiratory tract infections, a hoarse voice in older children, dental erosions in older children, and systemic in manifestations of reflux or reflux disease may include things like poor weight gain, failure to thrive, and even Sandifer syndrome. Sure, there's a whole wide category of things. and I mean, they can obviously be confused with many other potential you know, pathologies and causes of different pathologies. Um, where on earth do you begin investigating these kids, or what are the investigation choices for children with suspected reflux? As with our approach to any disease process, it's very important to take an accurate history and try and elicit from that history whether the pathology, the underlying pathology, may be reflux or not. Once the history is complete, a good physical examination is very important, and particularly in young infants, plotting of weight over a period of time would be a very important thing to do. Once you suspect that reflux may be the underlying disease process, we have various ways in which we can go about investigating these patients. The investigations that we can perform are upper gastrointestinal contrast studies, upper gastrointestinal endoscopy, pH and impedance studies, and MOOC scans. So what kind of information can we get from a combined intraluminal impedance and pH monitoring? So in current literature, combined impedance and pH studies are the gold standard for making the diagnosis of reflux. pH monitoring allows us to determine the number of reflux episodes, the length of reflux episodes, and the time to clearance of the reflux. The disadvantage with pH monitoring is that it only allows us to quantify acid reflux. Multi-channel impedance monitoring allows us to incorporate gaseous reflux and alkaline reflux, which may be equally responsible for symptoms and the pathological manifestations of reflux disease into our diagnosis. So how do you put these pH impedance monitors in? Or what does it look like? pH and impedance monitors may be inserted under fluoroscopy or, an, or with the use of endoscopy. And they usually involve a tubular structure with multiple ports that are placed within the esophagus and partially into the stomach. Okay, so you're actually measuring multiple different levels. So you said the stomach, the distal esophagus, um, and then mid to proximal esophagus as well. So you can determine what's happening at all those different levels simultaneously. Absolutely. 
So it's important to, to be able to ma- measure the pH at different points in the esophagus to one, first be able to compare it to the, to the pH in the stomach, and two, to be able to decide whether this pH may or may not be responsible for symptoms. We use a pH of four because that's the pH that's been used in adult studies to correlate with symptomatology. It's important to be able to measure impedance and pH at different levels in the esophagus to also be able to determine the level of the refluxate. So how, how do we interpret this thing? I mean, what is a reflux index? The reflux index is a measure of the amount of time that the pH in the esophagus is less than 4 relative to the total time of the study. Normally, studies are performed for 24 hours. In patients that are mixed feeds, that are on mixed feeds, we use a reflux index of 4%. In patients that are exclusively milk-fed, we use a reflux index of 3% because of the neutralizing effect of the milk on gastric acids. Okay, so just to get it clear in my mind, so what we're doing is looking at pH over a 24-hour time period, and what we need to see for pathological reflux is a pH of less than 4 for greater than 3% or 4% of the time, depending upon the age group of the individual. Yes, that's correct. So now we've got the diagnosis of reflux, and we know it's obviously pathological. Is there any role to do an upper GIT contrast study in these patients? Yes, absolutely. I think the first thing to remember is that an upper GI contrast study is not used to make the diagnosis of reflux. pH and impedance testing, or a combination of the two, are what we use to make the diagnosis of reflux. An upper GI contrast study will, number one, help us to assess the swallowing of the patient. Number two, it will help to delineate any anatomical abnormalities that may be causing the reflux, such as a hiatal hernia, an abnormal angle of his, or a distal obstruction. And finally, it will help us to determine if there are any complications of reflux, such as esophagitis, an esophageal stricture. So although they don't help us to make the diagnosis of reflux, they are certainly very useful in the management of reflux. Okay, now that's very interesting. Yeah, we often tend to miss or forget about secondary reflux and it's a good way of helping us make that diagnosis. So where does a milk scan fit into this whole investigative picture? Milk scans do have some role to play. pH and impedance monitoring are not available in all centers. Because of this, milk scans can give us a more complete picture than, say, an upper GI contrast study, which is a very short study occurring at a specific point in time. Milk scans allow us to assess for pathological manifestations such as aspiration, which may be associated with reflux, as well as gastric emptying. So because of this, they may be used in order to help us make the diagnosis of reflux in places where pH monitoring and impedance testing are not available. So, you know, I've always struggled a little bit about 
which patients require an upper GIT endoscopy with all of these other investigations that we've managed to do make the diagnosis of reflux or potentially not reflux which category of patients would you consider doing an upper GIT endoscopy on? For me endoscopy is reserved for two categories of patients the first category and the most obvious would be the patient that presents with symptoms of an upper GI bleed and you want to investigate that further. The second patient or the second category of patients in which endoscopy is useful is a patient that has been treated for what is assumed to be reflux disease but doesn't improve on the symptom doesn't doesn't have improved symptoms. In these cases it's possible to do endoscopy in order to look for the physical manifestations of reflux disease such as esophagitis but it's also possible for us to perform biopsies to confirm the diagnosis histologically as we know reflux may be confused with eosinophilic esophagitis which is the result of a milk allergy so because the presentation of patients with reflux is very similar to other disease processes biopsy or endoscopy affords the opportunity to biopsy the esophagus and confirm the diagnosis histologically in patients that haven't responded to treatment. Ah, no, thank you. That's excellent. That's a nice way of clearing it up. So, Nirav, now let's say we've got this patient with suspected reflux. We've made the diagnosis on our investigations. What are your first steps in treating somebody with gastroesophageal reflux the initial steps in managing patients with reflux disease are really conservative and they include dietary modification, positional changing, and pharmacological interventions. Dietary changes include decreased volume of feeds with an increased frequency of feeds to ensure that patients maintain an adequate caloric intake, thickening of feeds, and the avoidance of feeds that may exacerbate reflux disease such as carbonated or caffeinated drinks. Positional changes include sitting patients up when they feed, as well as having your last feed at least two hours before going to sleep or putting a patient in a supine position. Pharmacological interventions may be thought of as antacids, acid suppressants, and prokinetics. In children, it's not common practice to use antacids or prokinetics because of their side effects. And therefore, proton pump inhibitors are the most commonly used medications in order to control reflux disease. Do you think there's any role for GABA-beta antagonists? GABA-beta antagonists such as baclofen are an emerging class of drugs in the management of reflux disease in the neonatal population. It is postulated that they work on the lower esophageal sphincter and decrease the frequency or absolute number of transient lower esophageal sphincter relaxations. In the future, these drugs may become first-line therapy in the management of reflux disease in neonates. Yeah, something to look forward to. So if your conservative management of reflux sorts the problem out. How long do you keep an eye on those kids for? 
I think this is a very controversial topic and that there's no clear consensus on this. Um, there's an understanding that resolution of symptoms does not correlate with resolution of actual reflux. And because of this, we may have ongoing damage to the esophagus, which may later in life present as a peptic stricture, it may present as Barrett's esophagitis, and it may even present as an adenocarcinoma. So I don't think there's any clear answers on what to do once symptoms resolve. Some people will advocate serial endoscopy in order to have a macroscopic and microscopic by way of histolog histology assessment of the damage that reflux may be causing within the esophagus. But like I said, this is quite a controversial topic and there's no clear consensus on what should be done. So Nira, have you spoken about conservative treatment of pathological reflux in children? When would you consider a surgical anti-reflux procedure? Surgical management is really indicated in two instances. The first instance is, in the, is when medical management fails to control symptoms. The second instance is in, is in cases of severe pathological manifestations of reflux disease. We can think of this again in terms of the system that it affects. So, for instance, pathological manifestations of reflux disease in the esophagus would be an esophageal stricture or severe esophagitis. Respiratory complications requiring surgical management may be recurrent lower respiratory tract infections or an apparent life-threatening event. More systemic manifestations that may require surgical management are failure to thrive or even something such as Sandefur syndrome. So Nirav, you've highlighted for us the conservative options for treating gastroesophageal reflux. What are the surgical options that are available to our surgeons? Surgical management of reflux disease involves fundoplication. The fundoplication may be complete, as in the case of a Nissen fundoplication, which is a complete 360-degree wrap, or partial, as in the case of a toupee fundoplication, which is a posterior wrap, or a thal fundoplication, which is an anterior wrap. I must say, Nissen fundoplications are one of the cleverest inventions, if I can call it that, if you imagine. I mean, it's something that as the stomach gets fuller, the wrap tends to get tighter and acts almost like a one-way valve. What are the sort of principles of a Nissen fundoplication that we need to stick to to make it effective? I think the most important things to consider when optimizing success for a Nissen fundoplication are to achieve a loose, floppy wrap, to preserve the phrenoesophageal ligament if there is adequate intra-abdominal esophageal length, to perform an adequate hiatoplasty, and to suture the wrap to the hiatus or the esophageal hiatus or the crura to prevent wrap migration. So the Nissen fund application is becoming a more commonly utilized procedure as time goes on. What are the common side effects that we should expect our patients to be aware of and the potential complications of the procedure? 
So I think when you think about the complications of a Nissan fund application, you need to think about things that you would expect and things that you need to worry about. Transient dysphagia, flatulence, an inability to burp or gas bloat syndrome are things that you would expect and things that should resolve within three months of surgery and you need to explain to patients that these are possibilities. Complications that you need to worry about are persistent dysphagia that may be due to a wrap that's been created that's too tight or a recurrence of symptoms which may be due to wrap disruption or wrap migration. In cases of patients that present with complications that we need to worry about, such as persistent dysphagia or recurrence of symptoms, it's appropriate to investigate them with an upper GI contrast study in order to assess the integrity of the wrap that you've created. So Nira, the Nissen fund application is currently the gold standard of surgical treatment for gastroesophageal reflux disease. Are there any new emerging possibilities or new techniques that might be on the horizon? There's several new techniques emerging. Um, They're all endoluminal techniques and they involve either endoluminal suturing, endoluminal radiofrequency or endoluminal implantation of an inert material. I think the important thing to understand about the endoluminal techniques is that just in the case of Nissen fund application, the purpose is to create a one-way valve. Yeah, it's something to look forward to in the future. Yeah, thanks for that, Nirav. So we've looked at quite a complex disease process, ranging somewhere from normal physiology to real pathological disease that may in fact be life-threatening. Do you have any last uh, take-home messages that you would like to say? Yeah, I think uh, reflux is a very common disease and it's also very easy to misdiagnose. And because of that, we need to maintain a high level of suspicion, ask the appropriate questions on history, and do the appropriate investigations. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Discover Pediatric Surgery. Let your friends and colleagues know so we can all learn together. Catch you next week.